Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hi everyone, today you have Andrew Kirk and Joshua Rushing, and our guest is David Slyker. Now, David's been on before. Um, for those of you that haven't heard that episode with him and Joshua, I recommend you go listen to that. But David, for people that haven't heard that, can you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I'm David Slyker. I've been at the International House of Prayer in Kansas City for almost 20 years now. I uh, give leadership to our university, International House of Prayer University, and all of our training, our internships. Um, my wife works with me. We have uh, four kids, mostly older. Three are older, 21, 20, and, and 17. And then we have a little 10-year-old girl. And so um, they've all grown up here. And we do night and day prayer in the spirit of the Tabernacle of David. We do it with worship. We've done it since September of 1999. We haven't stopped. And we are contending continually in prayer for the breakthrough of the Lord in the global harvest, for uh, the breakthrough of the Lord in our cities and our families, and just more of his presence and his Holy Spirit in the, uh, in the advancing of the kingdom and missions around the world. So I love what I do. And then for people that want to find your resources, some of your teaching, where can they do that? The easiest place for me personally is davidsliker.com. That's just kind of the one-stop shop for sermons and books I've written and resources that, that I offer personally. And then, of course, for the International House of Prayer, ihopkc.org. With our 24-7 web stream, they can tune in to our prayer meetings and participate um, for our sermons, our resources that we offer out of here. That's a great place to go. Okay, and we'll put that information in the description. Um, now, you've got a new book, The Nation's Rage, and uh, we've managed to go through it and love what we've seen. Um, wow. And we want, to, we want to go through some quotes from it. But before we do that, can you just tell us what, what inspired you to write the book? Yeah, um, I mean, <laughs> no one's asked me that question, and so I haven't had to answer I, I had a really long, really intense, but really enjoyable conversation with, a, with an international leader who has a very different view on the return of Jesus and the dynamics of the future. At the time, it was pretty easy for him to hold the view of things are getting better, um, the, the uh, you know, revival's coming, we need to give young people faith. And so, uh, which I actually, I really enjoy their ministry. I, I said, I agree with a lot of what you say, but, um, but I don't know that you've considered this. And so we spent a good three, four hours just talking through Acts chapter 19, the dynamics of revival that I hear few people talk about. I hear people talk about revival only in the negative or only in the positive. I never hear people talk about the other side of revival which I said to him in the conversation, I said, I love what you do. You want to give young people faith to believe that the gospel can take cities. And I, I'm right there. I believe that we, we hold true to a gospel that can conquer cities. But what I don't see you doing is preparing young people for what happens when revival actually does conquer a city, Acts chapter 19. So you get them all the way to Acts 19:20, but you don't, prepare them for what happens next in verse 21 and following. And, uh, and we have a good enough friendship that I could say, I find that irresponsible, actually. I find that to be irresponsible as a shepherd and as a leader to tell young people something, get them to believe and contend for something, but then not to prepare them for that something is in some ways a form of unbelief. It's just hype. And so, um, so I actually believe that revival's coming. And it was, again, it was a really great conversation. And he said, wow, I've got a lot to think about. And so it was very, you know, I was intense, but, but I could be with him because of the, the uh, strength of the relationship. But, but, uh, but from there, it's just been a subject I've pondered and prayed about. And, and, uh, and then, of course, Baker approached me and asked me, you know, if you could write about anything, what would you write about? And so, I'd laid out 
these thoughts that the future is not only negative, it's positive, but it's not only positive, it's negative. And you rarely hear anybody talk about both sides of that. And so they loved it. They loved the idea, which I really appreciated because that's a little rare. And so, uh, so from that conversation and much writing and thought developed the book that I wrote to really prepare us for the future. Now the, the irony being I wrote it last fall and, uh, and I'm writing about things last fall that at the time seemed far into the future. And now here we are uh, a year later and the world's very different. And so that was the strange timing of the book that I wrote, not realizing that some of the things in it were right around the corner. Hmm. Yeah, and actually one of the quotes that we pulled out is very much some of the stuff that you were just talking about. So I guess we pulled the right one. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but we've got got a couple others. So let me start with, with this one. Okay, so we've got... Um, we choose to believe that the return of Jesus has nothing to do with our daily lives. And we do not need to concern ourselves with it. Now, as a ministry, we've traveled around the world, spoken a lot of conferences... And the return of Jesus is something we don't really hear being preached about. Um, we even talk to pastors and we say to them, you know, when the Bible says this gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, we say, you know, what are some elements that you think could be included in this gospel? And we never hear anyone say the return of Christ. Um, and if we talk to people, they often say, yeah, it's not my kind of thing. You know, it's, you know I don't concern myself with that. So yeah, how would you address how would you address this? Yeah, I, I understand why folks tend to shy away from the subject. Um, the not the early church, but the kind of you call it the middle church. The the middle church post early church fathers had to reconcile with why they were kind of in this indeterminate point of delay without Israel being a nation. And so they had to really grapple with what do prophecies about the future, about Israel about the church's relationship with Israel. What does that mean to us? And so those generations in grappling came to conclusions in their context that creates you know, branches of thought. And so you, you fast forward 2000 years and there's enough branches of thought that it can be intimidating to dive into the subject in a generation where it doesn't seem as if that subject is pertinent. Cause now you've got, you know, 10, 15 generations behind you. So you're thinking maybe I'm just one of them. Maybe I'm one of the groups by which I don't want to get so excited about something that isn't going to pertain to me and my kids. We want to be, we want to be practical. And so the, so the idea of understanding the return of Jesus doesn't seem practical. The problem is what do you do when you're in the season that's leading up to that? How do you transition out of, is this for me? And how do you transition into, I actually think we're in a unique time in history. I need to understand these things, but my forefathers, my immediate forefathers in the faith haven't handed me anything. And so, uh, and so we need help. And I think that we're in, a, we're in an hour where the Holy Spirit's helping the church. There's an unprecedented interest from within and without in the body of Christ. And there's an, a grace, an available grace to pursue understanding of the subject to kind of, you know, pull away the weeds that have grown over 2000 years and cut right to the heart of the matter, getting out of the streams and tributaries that have sprung up out of the, the seasons of uncertainty and, and getting right back to the word. There is a, there is a grace from the Holy spirit as the Lord promised, you know, at the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel 12, that there would be grace for these kinds of things. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but, um, but yeah, I think um, I have, I don't, I'm not bothered that, that people don't um, feel confident related to the subject. There's a lot of history behind that why, and just, we're just folk. And so folks step into that history and they need help. And then the folks that are going to help the folks that need help, as the Lord promised, Ephesians 4, the fivefold ministry that gets the church into that unity of faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God right before you know the, the return of the lord that's that's all of that is the way in which we need help from the lord to step into the 
moment that we find ourselves in. But, but the good news is I believe the Lord's helping us. Yeah. I so appreciate that, uh, David, because you, we do have a handful of people, you know, in the body of Christ, you know, people that are really engaged in this topic, really engaged in the subject matter, you know, and there can almost become an us and them. Well, you know, if only they would, you know, have the light to, you know, to be able to study these things like we are. But what I heard you say, there was such, there was such com- there, there's more of a compassion. Go, hey, I get it. I understand it. Let's walk through this together. Um, there's not sort of an us and them kind of thing. So I think that the, the way you're approaching that is extremely healthy. And I appreciate that a lot. Well, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm not that wise and I'm not that spiritual and I'm not that smart. The, uh, I would have been the most rabidly against apart from the Lord's divine intervention and into my life and the way that he's helped me. But I don't look at his help as me being special or unique. I look at his help as a, there's something about the way that I made that fits the help that the Lord wants to give. And of course, there's 10,000 others that the Lord is setting his hand on and beyond. And so, so the idea that, you know, it's, it's, I used to hear the same thing. It's funny you said that. I used to hear the same thing from intercessors for years. Nobody shows up to the prayer meetings. But then I realized, you know, everybody's kind of that way about their thing. Why doesn't more, why don't more people evangelize? I think the only people that aren't like that are pastors. But, uh, but even then, there can be a woe is me. You know, if, if Elijah had a woe is me and the intercessors at times, I mean, the, the last thing that we can afford is for anyone with a, a desire to lay hold of a foreigner spirit to have a woe is me, I'm so lonely. We don't have time for that. And, and so we just, we have to say yes to the assignment that we're given and we have to serve according to the grace available for that assignment. And we need all of the assignments. And so, we need, peop- we need some people to not stop what they are doing, but the Lord's going to grace others to go deep in the subject, and we'll all meet in the middle. I mean, it's, it, there ultimately is a sovereign God behind this that is helping us, and we are thankful for his help. We are not that wise. Mm. Yeah, I think as well, I think the times we're living in obviously are very different from when you started writing this book or when you finished it. Um, you know, we, we often hear people saying the book of Revelation is too difficult. And so I'm not even going to bother starting, which to plug another one of your books, End Time Simplified is a great one for people to, to go and get. And I know a lot of people that have read it after having a conversation with us that said that was really helpful. Um, but with the, with COVID and all of the chaos, which is now breaking out around the world, there are a lot more people now coming to us asking these questions about some of the end time situations that that are going to be coming our way uh, and even people that before had said to us this is too difficult so i'm not even going to get started some of those people are now going okay well maybe maybe i should get started now um as they recognize there is a, a shift in this atmosphere and the, the days that we're living in right now and they realize actually this is really important <laughs> for me to get a grips with um you you say we hear songs about revival or we hear people preaching about the end time harvest and everyone saying, yes, amen. We want to see revival. We went to see the end time harvest. And, and we often are listening to these conversations or these messages and, and we think that this is great. We want to say yes, but have you considered the context in which these things are going to happen? And you say in your book, we hear, mes- we hear faith messages advertising the revival power of the Holy Spirit described in the first part of Acts 19. We rarely hear a call to prepare the reaction of the wicked to it. Prepare for the reaction of the wicked to it. So uh, why does that concern you? Uh, because I, I find that we're, we're a bit naive. Um, and the, the subject we're the most naive about is the subject of God himself and his invasive holiness. In other words, we haven't thought through the divine problem of being God. If, if revival was easy, why isn't there more of it? And, you know, for all of the kind of positivity messages around revival and hope and 
glory, if those messages were that simple and true, then why isn't there more? Then, of course, what happens next is the reductionism of the subject of revival to answer that question. No, we're in revival. Think about the size of the mega churches and think about these cool events that are happening right now around the nation and lots of people are gathering. And so we've, we've reduced revival in one sense by making it so positive, then we reduced it again to explain for its absence. That's just, no, you don't have eyes to see we're in revival. And so it's like a double reductionism. And then when you do that, you're not grappling with the biggest problem of revival, which is the problem of the second coming, which is, which is the problem of God himself invading the planet and what that means related to justice and righteousness and alignment with him and his heart. We assume it. We assume that we are in agreement. We assume that we're on the same page, but, um, but we're a bit naive to, well, number one, the Old Testament. We love the parts of the Old Testament that, that promise blessing and and uh, and glory but we tend to ignore some of the dynamics of a nation that was interacting in a very direct way with the holy invasive intense presence of the lord we ignore the cost of that we ignore what happened to their hearts in that interaction and how how there's an ex- i mean the presence of god has an accelerated there's an accelerant an accelerated dynamic related to his presence that that kind of thrusts the heart and our lives in a direction. I think I say it in the book, revival isn't everyone gets saved. Revival is everyone decides. There's a, there's a catalytic dynamic to the invasive presence of the Lord that thrusts the heart to a conclusion that we were on the way to making, but the presence of God jolts us into making. And think about, I mean, think about Mount Sinai. Think about what the Israelites choose in the presence of God. It seems ludicrous to us. It see, we, we look at them with, with kind of a, you know, the distance of time, which creates this arrogance of our superiority. We know more. We wouldn't do that. We don't understand. We're naive to why a human heart in the presence of Yahweh coming down to a mountain with the Revelation 4 throne room. We're naive to what the human heart does when confronted by that kind of glory and beauty and majesty and power. And the power they were confronted with, the just sheer raw magnitude of who it was that came down to that mountain, they do what seems to us as Westerners to be irrational. They go create this golden calf and worship it. We don't understand how terrified they were of that God and how, it, the, the, how what the human heart does in rationalizing fear and, and, and the intensity of it all they go do something to try to gain control of their lives back. And you see that all throughout the narrative. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 6, men are irrational with fear when they feel the loss of control in the presence of the greater power. And when God comes, it's the presence of a greater power far beyond, far beyond what the mind can grasp. And so it's almost like the mind breaks and the heart goes funny. And we just do funny things. And so they are in the presence of the greater power, bowing down to a golden calf they made. And we think we're better. We think we're smarter. And we don't, we're, that's what I mean when I say from Exodus to Revelation 6, the sixth seal, when, when God begins to move in a very manifest and direct way in confronting humanity, this is the future what do, what do humans do? They start shouting to the mountains to fall on them. I, I, I Fall on me. The wrath of the lamb, which is really good theology, by the way. The wrath of the lamb has come. Who can stand? They, they are so uh, nihilistically powerless and terrified. They're crying out to creation to destroy them rather than face the God that's confronting them. That's the, that, so you have two mountains, the mountain uh, Sinai in our past and the mountains in our future that men are crying out to for respite from the fear. And, and again, we, just, we look at the past and we think we're better and we look at the future and think that's exaggerated. And, and it's because we're, we're more blind in our pride and, and our arrogance than we realize, which makes us naive about who it is that comes when revival comes and who it is that returns when Jesus returns, we're just not ready for any of it. The judgment seat, we're not ready for God. We're not ready for more of him. 
the things that we cry out for sentimentally because we want our lives to be better, we actually haven't, we haven't read the Bible with a prayerful, humble heart to see who it is we're talking to and inviting to invade our lives. And so why do I care? I care because there is a righteous response to the real God when we understand with more clarity what it is we're asking for when we ask God to come. And we prepare our hearts accordingly. We gird our lives. We live with a sobriety. We live with a different perspective. It's it's not that I'm wanting people to be, this is a big term, eschatologically proficient. I don't want them to be experts on the end times. But we do want to have an eschatological paradigm or perspective. In other words, we want to see in a bigger picture and think a certain way because of it and live a certain way. And if we think rightly and live a little more right, we can actually live a life that can bear up under the weight of the times and not be pressed or crushed by the weight of those times. I, I think just for me, having a little bit more perspective on what the Bible says about the future makes the, the 2020, which is a horrible year for many, it, it hasn't been so horrible for me because I can, because of the way in which the word has it, it, it gives an, a, a grace to bear weight. And to me, the pop quiz of 2020 is the insufficiency of our theology coming to bear on our hearts and lives by which we're unable to bear even the slightest of increases of pressure and far beyond is coming the 2020. This is a pop quiz. This is the mere edges of where this is going. And if we already feel weighed down, it's, um, it's a rude awakening related to what we're really at. We're not asking for less trouble. We're asking for more God. And more God makes 2020 look, again, like a cakewalk. So those would be reasons why I care. Mm. And you, you mentioned in that, in that quote that Andrew read about um, revival also stirring up uh, reactions of the wicked men. And, you know, it's one thing for us to say, okay, let's prepare our hearts for the glory, which you mentioned earlier, but the glory, and we talked about this briefly in, in our, our last podcast, the glory also stirs up the other side. And we also have to be prepared for that. Uh, so just, just for a, a, a minute or two, could you just touch on that, the, how revival stirs up the, the hearts of the wicked. And that's part of our, part of what we need to be prepared for as well yeah yeah it is true i'm gonna answer funny because i know and like you guys um i'm gonna answer that a little differently than what you're asking um to a broader audience that has never thought about these things before the things that i just said is a leap off a precipice into into no like it's just it's hard to find a a reference point because you've only heard in American Christianity that God is good and warm and loving and tender. He is all those things minus the warm. I mean, it's warm, but, but not in the way I think sometimes our fluffy Western positivity wants to portray him to see the other side of God in his holiness. Ultimately what I want to prepare people for isn't that our, our greatest crisis is them. Our greatest crisis is God and us. In other words, the right answer is repent. Um, if I get into the right answer, that, that yes, there's going to be a backlash from wicked men, but if I get into repentance and I get aligned with God's heart, if I recognize that my greatest problem isn't wicked men but me, and if I, if I recognize that my greatest problem isn't a pandemic, it's me. It's when the pandemic hits, I'm alone in my house with me. And, I, and, and I'm more cranky at my kids and my wife and my dog. I'm more, I'm more, I, I'm thin in terms of my emotional, you know, the, the props that were holding up my life are suddenly worn down and I'm left with me and I'm seeing how much I'm the problem. And if, and if I can get out of a propped up life and get into a life of genuine, genuine, like authentic, not hyper-spiritualized, not hyper self pityized not really a word, into a life of genuine repentance, into genuine resolve and clarity and real rest in my soul, then whatever wicked men have to throw at me, you know, here we are. Let's, this is, 
you know, in one sense, if if you're a follower of the cross, it's what you signed up for. But that's the bait and switch. It's not really what we signed up for. We didn't sign up for wicked men getting mad when God invades their town. We signed up for me getting blessed when God invades the town. And so we're having to we're having to reconcile with all the things that we consciously or unconsciously signed up for related to the benefits of Christianity. And and in one sense, the book is a, a very early wake-up call related to where people are at, uh, a kind, as kind as I could say it. Like, hey, like this, there's a different version of Christianity and a more biblical version of God and a more biblical version of the human heart apart from God that if we can connect to those things, we'll end up preparing by going after the biggest problem, which is my disconnect from the biblical narrative and the biblical God and the biblical me and the biblical them, that, uh, that the more I can get aligned with those things, the more settled I can become. And so I'm thinking the way that your group tracks with this podcast, I'm thinking they would get the bigger problem isn't the wicked man not liking when God brings change to their town. The bigger problem is I don't like those changes and need to repent. If I'm honest. And I don't, I'm not on the same page with some things that God wants to do. I've sentimentalized parts of the Bible or dismissed them entirely because I'm not comfortable with the God that I find there. And that's to me, we've been given time to reconcile with our own tricky heart and the real God on the other side of it that loves us and is kind, but isn't going to change to, to adapt to who our heart thinks he is. Mm. And so it's kind of a weird way to answer your question, but. Yeah. There, there are a couple of points <clears throat> that you said about, um, you know, what one, what is the gospel that we signed up for and the, the personalizing it. Um, we were very much uh, connected with Richard Vernbrandt. And uh, my mum was a part of a team that went to help rescue him from Romania and get him out of solitary confinement and then travel with him as his as his bodyguard, which is hilarious. Um, if you've ever met my mum, people listening, uh, her as a bodyguard is quite the image. But uh, we would often hear stories from him. And uh, I remember one uh, where he's talking about a group of young people that wanted to give their lives to Christ. And so he took them to the zoo and they went to the lion's den. And so when they got to the lion's den, he said to them, you know, our forefathers gave their lives for the gospel and they were eaten by these lions. You know, are you willing to be eaten by these lions? Are you willing to give your life for the gospel? I was like, wow, okay, yeah, that's not a very comfortable gospel that you're, uh, <laughs> you're giving there. But he's saying, you know, this is something you have to be willing to lay your life down for. He's not promising a, a comfortable life if you give your lives to, to, to Christ. And um, um, you know, when we talk to people in persecuted countries, talking about this personalizing it and not so much being concerned about the external side of things, we talk to people in persecuted countries and uh, we would say to them, how can we pray for you? And uh, often they'll say to us, you know, don't pray that persecution stops. Pray that we have the strength to endure. And so they realize, you know, this, this other stuff is going to happen. But how am I able to handle this personally? Um, and so that was very interesting that you, you raised those two things, especially that personalizing it. And uh, it just straight away it brought me, brought me to the persecuted church and how they, how they often do that themselves. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I mean, that's, it's, I, it's not intense. It's just honest. You know, at the end of the day, I want to sign up for the Christianity that is true. I want to sign up for the one that is real. And the Bible is pretty unflinching about who people really are and what they really do. And the Bible's pretty unflinching and honest about who I really am and what I really do. And I find that the only dishonest one in the room is me. I'm not willing to be honest about where people are really at. I, I, I don't, I'm not willing to be honest about where I'm, where I'm really at because life is about how I want it to be. And, and, uh, and repentance aligns me to a whole different way of, of yielding and surrendering 
And, um, but then again, I don't want to only tell that part of the story. Then when I begin to yield and surrender to the way it really is, I find on the other side of it, a really beautiful God, a genuinely beautiful God that, that whose love, whose heart, whose tenderness, whose mercy, whose humility, whose lowliness, whose servant heartedness. I mean, the things that are true about God and his beauty and, and who I find on the other side of my yielding is, uh, is it really moves me in a deep way. And so, and that's the, that's, that's one of the, the ways in which the Lord helps us is he calls us to something real. We find him on the other side of that call. We want to say yes to the real God and his real beauty. And it costs us everything to do so. But, uh, but we find that the cost is worth it when we know who he really is. And so I want to, I want to live the Christianity that's real. And I want to believe what's true. And on the other side of that, I want to love the God that's beautiful and all that that means. And so if all of that is true, then I want to confront the world as it is. And I want to be ready for what, for what's coming. Mm. Yeah. In your book, there's, there's a, a good chunk of time focused on, on the generations and uh, we being a ministry called generation to generation uh, we got there we're like oh this is cool this is this is what we're talking about right now and um you you mention malachi 4 5 and 6 and you say this key moment in history involves fathers and sons mothers and daughters and the connection of three generations of faith so why do you consider this this multi-generational connection important for this key moment in history i i find that there are few ministries on the earth that have the benefit of three generations in terms of how they do life meaning um i find um, as i'm sure you have that either there's a lot of there's a number of ministries that are, for lack of a better term, aging out. They haven't raised up someone. They're they're not thinking in terms of the forty to twenty year olds. Lots of the ministries that are aging out, I'm finding they they hadn't prepared for later in life. They hadn't prepared for the financial dynamics. They're not ready to let go because of it. They're, they're hanging on as the, as the primary leader a bit too long. And so the younger people are, are finding other places to go. They're losing the young people in their midst. And so they find themselves ministering to an older congregation, trying to make their, their life work. Um, I don't like that. But then on the flip side, I find that ministries are overreacting to that dynamic. And so what they're doing is, you know, there's, there's 60, there's 70, and they're so desperate to keep the ministry going that they that they skip past you know the 40 year olds and the 50 year olds and they go right for the 30 year olds and they're putting now 30 year olds in really senior places of leadership but the 30 year olds are finding themselves now leading these older congregations um and the the conflict in those congregations is really intense and then of course I'm finding one of the most troubling things is church planning movements where it's like, we don't need any of those old authority structures. We don't need the fathers. We don't need the gatekeepers. So it used to be that we had to pay our dues and maybe get handed something and maybe not. But with the, we, we found church planning models where we could skip the old guys altogether and we could just go plant a church. And so they're handed this amazing marketing strategy. They instantly have a congregation of 300, but there's no grandfathers in the midst. They didn't, they didn't need them. They didn't need the permissions. They just kind of, they're off on their own doing what they do, but there's, and so there's a lot of energy and a lot of skill and gifting, but very little substance and depth and history. I just find it to be rare to come into a ministry where there's a seasoned 40 and 50 year old, you know, in, you know, with strength giving leadership with, with, uh, with 20 year olds that are laboring with energy and skill and, and grace, but with, you know, those 60 year old apostolic tiebreakers, I call them, you know, just the guys that could come in, they got the seasoned wisdom of years that sometimes the energetic 
20-year-olds, and even the seasoned 40-year-olds can miss, but those apostolic fathers and mothers that can come in and go, you know, you know, it's just, you're missing this point. It's not that important. And suddenly the whole thing is shifted on a sentence of wisdom that would have cost a year of time. And so, um, so I find when, when there's those ministries where there's the 20s, 20 year olds, the 40 year olds and the 60 year olds laboring together with unity and, and, and family in a sense of mutual honor and empowerment for the three generations, I find it's one of the most healthy and necessary expressions we can labor for in this hour. We need all three generations. We need the seasoned wisdom of the 60-year-old. The 20-year-old's not so keen to listen. They don't talk in ways the 20-year-old grasps. And so they, the 40-year-olds need to interpret the 60-year-olds for the 20-year-olds. The 40-year-olds need to interpret the 20-year-olds for the 60-year-olds. But the 40-year-olds need to not be so into their strength and ready. I've been ready for this moment. I've been waiting for somebody to hand this to me, that they throw off the yoke of restraint related to what it means to labor with 60-year-olds apostolic leaders and so there's a humility and a deference and an honor it takes so much to get those three generational kind of i'm being generic but it takes so much to get kind of those three generational groups laboring together i'm not talking about young adults and kids i'm talking about the young adults that could go elsewhere or the 40 year olds that could cast off the 60 year old or the 60 year old that doesn't know how to grab the 20 year olds and and so the lord just he set it up so that we would need each other, not just in the first Corinthians 12 diversity of gifting, but the Lord set it up so we need each other generationally as well. And we're coming into an hour in which it's all hands on deck. I mean, again, as this last year has proven, we need the 60 year old apostolic leaders, but we need the 20 year olds with fire and, and zeal and creativity and freshness of heart. We need the 40-year-olds that can, that can lead with strength. And I, again, I think if you have all three, I think that's what's needed in an hour like this. Hmm. Yeah. I don't hear anybody saying that out there. It's, I mean, it's, it seems so obvious to me, but I, I'm wondering if it's so absent we don't even know to look for it. Yeah, I mean, as a ministry, this has been one of our theme songs for 28 years. And um, 28 years ago, we felt like we were in the wilderness, um, screaming at ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now there's there's more people. But, I mean, there's all kinds of rabbit holes we could go down uh, at this point. Um, you know, <laughs> People often think that what we're talking about here is everyone being in a room together, maybe, for us to then have generational connection and we say to them actually you can have everyone in one room together but still be completely disconnected and uh, you know th this is ultimately about relationship and there's no quick fix to it. it there's deep generational repentance that's needed for these generations to come back together and and we give an example we're in russia and um we we were in this church, half the room was kind of these elderly babushka ladies, and the other half of the room was this young generation, very sort of hillsongy. So uh, while we were in the worship, you could feel it. this tension between this elderly side with their songbooks, um, who grew up behind the Iron Curtain and all that kind of stuff, uh, where they had no freedom. And then you have this younger generation, hillsongy, jumping up and down and and you could feel these attitudes of this older generation saying how disrespectful that they be like this. And then you have this younger <laughs> generation looking at them going, wow, look at them. They're all so uptight and stiff. And, you know, as we started to talk to them about how the older generation stood through hard times so that the next generation could have the freedoms they have. And that the younger generation have those freedoms because of the older generation. And we started to really work this in the conference. You gradually saw these young people just break down in tears. Uh, <laughs> uh, we're not doing this. And um, so you saw these younger people just run across the room spontaneously there was nothing set up about it but run across the room and throw themselves into the laps of the older people as tears just started to flow and and we say you know that's that's what generational connection is you need this deep working of repentance 
to see these generations start to connect that you can't just put people in a leadership position or have everyone in one room and then say oh look and therefore we now have this generational connection um and so it is really encouraging for us seeing your book this emphasis on the importance of these generations especially for the days that we're living in and then going into the future um boy <laughs> so you're right it's not Beautiful. it's not it's not something that we see happening in a lot of places and like you said people tend to overcompensate and so like sometimes we would speak at a church about the leadership and we would talk about the generations and the connection and we would leave and we would come back for maybe conference number two and then find out that they've put some really young person into a very senior leadership position and we're like what is did we did we say to do that like we like this is not what we were talking about and um but like I said, this could go down a number of different rabbit holes. <laughs> and uh, you you press the button. And I, I know Joshua, obviously, as well, with him and his family are now also multiple generations, even within uh, within one church as well. You know, it's funny. You talk about the Russian church. They're a great case study. The, the Korean church could be as well. But uh, you may know this about the Russian church, the, the kind of joke uh, on the Russian side and, you know, in, you know, over in, over in Russia about the Russian church in America is that the Russian church in America is more Russian than Russia because, because, you know, the folks that emigrated were, were afraid of losing their Russian culture. And so there's an intensity by which they preserve. And, it, and it's the exact opposite story. Cause it's funny. I've been in Russian churches in Russia. So I've seen that exact dynamic. Uh, of the young people ready to break away and the older folks in, in those, in those streams, those big four denominations wanting to wanting young churches. And so they're given, they're given some space, but again, in, in America, it's the exact opposite. It's the, the, the zeal to preserve is so great that they're, they're stifling the life out of the thing and young people, their young people are leaving. And so, um, and so there's that there's that both sides dimension. There's the way in which the young person forgets and, and uh, doesn't have a sense of honor, but the flip side is the way in which the the older person can, you know. I mean, both really both groups are making it about themselves. That's the beauty of Malachi four six. The Lord says, "I'm going to turn my heart. I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers towards." I'm going to. It's so it's so simple, but we don't. Again, because we think they're the problem, we don't think I'm the problem. And so the Lord goes, "No, I'm going to turn your heart towards. Your heart is turned inward." You're making it about you. You're making it about what you want. Young people, you're making it about what you want. And both groups are doing this, protecting themselves against the other, lest the young people change this into a church I don't want to be a part of, or the old people lead a church I don't want to be a part of. And the Lord goes, I'm going to actually turn your hearts towards one another by releasing the spirit of Elijah, which means that I'm actually going to turn your heart towards me and what I'm doing. And what I'm about, and when your hearts are torn, turned towards me first, then your hearts will turn towards one another, but on my terms. It's not just a generational turning of, oh, you're cool and I like you now. You're still always going to have to deal with the problem of power and who wields it and who's going to wield it in a way I don't like and how am I going to yield and who's going to, who's, how do we yield to one another? We yield to one another not because a son is yielding to a father and the father gets to determine what the church is going to be. Or the father yields to the son, and the son determines what the church is going to be. The spirit of Elijah says, no, there's a returning king. We yield to him, and he determines what the church is going to be. And together we yield to him, which causes us to yield to one another for the purposes of Jesus to be realized in our community that are higher than our self-preference. The, the pride, the sin of self-preference is the most subtle and deadly form of pride it's the one we justify the most. I, I want it the way that I want it. I want the church the way I want it to be. I don't like when these young people come in because I don't like when they do this, this, and this. Well, I don't like when these old people come in because they won't let me change the color of the walls. And so the, and so it's so petty, but it's, mm. it's this self-preference that, that locks in and won't yield because we're not surrendered to a higher thing called the spirit of Elijah, the forerunner spirit, the preparation for where this is going that gets us out of our petty kind of self-centered, self-preferential narratives 
and gets us into, wait, we don't have time for this. This is really small stuff. I don't care what the color of the wall is. There's a real God coming to the earth. The earth is on a real collision course with him. Even revival isn't make things better. Revival is move history closer to this confrontation that's really intense. And so it just kind of snaps us out of our fog of, mm. of our own little worlds that we build for ourselves. And there is no way towards generational reconciliation apart from the spirit of Elijah, that forerunner preparation for where this is going. Mm. You, we uh, Often people think that preparing the next generation is the job of a few chosen people. So we say to them, you know, actually, as far as we're concerned, biblically, there's two groups of people that are responsible for reaching the next generation. There's only two. So one is that parents are the primary disciples of their kids. And the second is that one whole generation is responsible for the next. And we've turned this command of God into a calling. So we say who's called to youth and children's ministry, for example. And we say to them, actually, everyone, everyone in the church is responsible for reaching and raising the next generation and um, saying to them you know we have to be alert to what's going on in order to prepare the next generation and uh, in your book you say I find it irresponsible to prophesy revival and do nothing to prepare the next generation for it I find it irresponsible to proclaim hope and positivity and do little to alert the saints to the severity of the times and failing to equip them for the necessary response or in 1 Chronicles 12 32 talking about knowing the signs of the times and what to do or as you say alert and equipped so how can people position themselves to be as those people to be alert and to equip obviously reading your book would be a good start <laughs> I, I appreciate that I think um you know it's funny the yeah, you, I'm sure you know the history of children's and youth ministry better than I do. But, you know, children in the youth ministry at its inception, were they were evangelistic endeavors. They, they weren't meant to supplant the parental unit related to discipleship of, of children within the church. They were meant to go outside. I had to answer that question as a youth pastor when, when folks within my own church would go, why do we have a youth ministry? We should have family ministry. And I go, no, we can, but... Now, I love family ministry. I also love unsaved teenagers, and our family ministry isn't going to do a thing for them. And I, I always saw myself as an evangelist. And so, and so that dynamic of youth and children's ministry and discipleship and the next generation, the, um, again, it's, it's, not so, it's not so different than my answer a moment ago. The alert, and the, the alarm, the preparation, you you prepare for the future that you believe is coming and, and you, you prepare in accordance to the scope of the problem as you perceive it. You know, I think it's in the book. I used world war one as the example. Everybody knew world war two was coming. Nobody knew world war one was coming. They had just gotten into a place of denial. I said it in the book that the best seller in that time, the turn of the century, you know, the, the Gilded age, the, uh, the Victorian era, it was just such a prosperous era that the number one selling book back then on the subject was by a man named Laurie Engel, and it was about the impossibility of global war, that the colonial powers would never compromise their wealth, the colonial powers would never compromise their standing to enter into a self-destructive global war that could, that could wipe out their prosperity. And so everybody's buying this book like, yes, it's true. Things seem intense, but no way we're going to war. And um, I find us to be in a very similar moment to World War I more than World War II in that we just, we've kind of settled into the impossibility. We, we, we've considered certain futures impossible. So you, you prepare for the future you believe is coming and you prepare according to the problem as you understand it. And so if you, if you can connect to the future that's actually coming, if you could connect to the fact that there was going to be a global war, how would they have lived differently in light of that information? And if they saw the scope of the problem in living differently, how would they have lived commensurate to the, to the scope? And so, so if, I, if I grasp the full dimensions of the problem, 
suddenly, actually, if I begin to grasp those dimensions, I am alarmed. Like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking that the problem, that the future was going to be this, and actually it's going to be this. It's going to be entirely different than what I thought. And the problem's going to be here when I thought it was here. I am so completely unprepared. And those, those are the dynamics of urgency that begin to reframe the choices we make, the how we spend our money, how we spend our time. Um, even related to prayer and intercession, I give myself to prayer and the word differently if it's a matter of life and death. And this is kind of a funny way to think about it. But Revelation chapter 4, right before the book of Revelation unfolds, um, the book of Revelation is going to describe some of the most intense and difficult moments in human history for the human race. But right at the beginning, the Lord puts the most beautiful thing the human mind can conceive of, the throne room of God. And it, we want to make those separate subjects. We want to make the beauty of God and the beauty of that room and the beauty of where he's seated, the, the beauty of where God resides. We want to make that its own subject and get lost in it and enjoy it. But when the Lord puts his throne room and his beauty and that subject of his blazing glory, when he puts it right in the beginning of what he's going to say about the future, he makes the subject of beauty the subject of life and death. He actually goes, no, this is, I'm going to take your desire, your ache for beauty, and I'm going to attach to it urgency and make it a matter of life and death. We don't, we don't think about the future on those terms. Like we don't think about the gap, the gap in my life, the gap in my understanding, the gap in what I believe actually has set me up very negatively for when the actual future comes crashing into my reality. And so that, then we go, how, what's the way forward? God goes here, Revelation 4, it's beauty. Beauty is your way forward. Knowing me is your way forward, but I don't want this to be a casual pursuit to benefit your bank account. I want this to be a matter of life and death to benefit your grandkids. And because I want you to hand them something that's bigger than you. And I want you to hand them something that's actually going to help them bear up when they're right in the middle of this thing. And so, um, and so again, the, the, the grandchildren thing from my dedication, I wrote this book for my grandkids and yours because that's real to me. I don't, I, I'm thinking about what my grandfather's handed us related to understanding of the now. Do I understand the real future and do I understand the intensity of the problem connected to that future? I don't know that our grandfathers handed us that and we find ourselves in a little bit of a disadvantage, but there's still time and there's still grace and there's still the real Holy Spirit, but I, I want to, by the grace of God and the time given to us, I want to use that time to hand our grandkids something real and I have an urgency about it because I, I, the more I'm connecting to the scope of what's coming to them, the more I have an urgency in my spirit to get clear and to live a life in God they want to emulate and to keep the bridges of relationship open. There's, I mean, you know, there's 10 things that that means to have a clear channel of communication open to my grandkids and to have something to give them so that they, so that when they get there, they're ready. And so, so yeah, I just think it's all, it's about seeing. It's about what we see and how we understand the future and, and the Lord makes up, of first importance, the subject of beauty, knowing him, and, and he sets urgency to it. Yeah, I think that's also connected to um, Jesus's unity prayer. You know, we often think about unity in the church, a unified church um, being, well, we're not fighting each other, or we're unified theologically, or we're unified you know, this way, or we put up with each other, you know, that kind of thing. Rarely do you see connected to the, that unity prayer of Jesus, generational unity. And, and I believe that's probably one of the primary areas that when you look at the church right now going, yeah, this is not happening um, in, in, a, in, a, in a large sense in the church. And so, you know, I think that unity prayer is an eschatological prayer. The, the, you know, Jesus, John 15, 16, 17, when he's, when he's praying, that is a very, eschatological prayer um, that the church would be one and but we we rarely connect the generational subject matter with that prayer and that puts this generational thing along with the malachi prophecy that puts it in its eschatological place um, that i believe is where it belongs and, and that does create that sense of urgency that you were talking about dave there's there needs to be an urgency 
uh, within the church to find ways to for the fathers to connect with the sons and the sons to the fathers? Yeah, I think there are there are moments of future reconciliation that are going to blow our minds. I mean, on the prophetic calendar in the future, closer than we think, the Lord has said, and we'll start at the big one and go backwards. The Lord said, I'm going to reconcile. I mean, the big one is I'm going to reconcile all men to myself. I'm going to reconcile planet Earth to me so that I can dwell on it. I mean, that's the biggie. But he goes, but you can't, you're not quite ready for that one. So I'm going to tell you some of the more impossible ones that lead up to that. To get there, I'm going to reconcile Jew and Gentile. I'm going to reconcile Israel to the earth and remove anti-Semitism from the planet forever, which we go, oh, what? Wait a minute, what? Yeah, I'm going to utilize the church to be catalytic, to heal an ancient hatred that goes back to the beginning, back to Abraham. I'm going to use the church to do that, but I'm going to Keep going. I'm going to reconcile Isaac to Ishmael. I'm going to reconcile Jew to Arab. As I reconcile Jew to Gentile, I'm going to start with Jew to Arab, and you're going to be shocked at what happens in the Middle East when I bring my family back together. I'm going to reconcile black and white. It seems really bad right now, but I'm going to reconcile a a not as ancient hatred, a not as deep hatred. We look at black and white as the big one, particularly in America. The Lord goes, actually, Jew and Arab is the big one. Black and white is big, but it doesn't, go bar, it doesn't go back as far or as deep as Jew and Arab. I'm going to do it all. And then Malachi 4, as you said, I'm going to reconcile father's son. I'm going to do it all. But not only am I going to reconcile, I'm going to save, I'm going to reconcile. But then you said the big one. I'm going to reconcile, not just by getting everybody in the same room, as Andrew said earlier so well. I'm going to do it John 17 style. I'm going to get you so reconciled that you love each other the way that I love which means that you're not just going to put up with one another. You're not just going to tolerate one another. You're going to have deep, open-hearted affection and a willingness to lay your life down to fight for one another's destiny, to fight for one another's calling. You're actually going to see who each other, who you are. You're going to see individuals as they really are, as I see them. You're going to feel what I feel towards them. You're going to see the bigger picture of their story. You're going to see where they're going and what I've made them for. And you're going to fight for that without personal, without a sense of personal gain. You're not going to fight for it in a way that benefits you at all. You're going to fight for it to see them fully loosed in what they were made for. And it's going to happen across racial lines, familial lines, uh, generationally hostile lines. I'm going to do it at every level in a way that's going to stun the earth and the earth will have to choose me or the other power that arises that seemingly has more power, but there's a quality of something that's going to arise in what I do, a global reconciliation movement that's going to be far beyond what you can imagine. Mm. Come on, man. Yeah. Um, oh, as we, as we come to the end, I want to read one more quote. And um, you, say, you say this. Paul said, the world is a perilous, dangerous place for Christians. However, we do not need to fear the world or where it's headed. And then you go on to say, the Father is going to put a mature, beautiful, powerful church on display for all the nations to see. Now, there may be people listening to this who look at the world right now and may be paralyzed with fear. Fear of what the world is now, fear of the direction the world is heading in. Can you just speak to the hearts of those people who may be struggling with that fear of what they see right now and um, encourage them with, um, or yeah, just give them some encouragement? <laughs> yeah, First uh, John 5, John said it best, perfected love cast down all fear. The opposite of love in the Bible isn't hate. The opposite of love in, in the New Testament, at least, is fear that uh, the Lord was consistently compassionate towards so many issues of brokenness. He would every once in a while give a rebuke, but his most consistent was related to the issue of unbelief that would be connected to fear. You know, that, that sense of self-preservation, that sense of fear exposes the truth about our heart condition and who we really are is it's self-preserving and and, and for the believer, death has no sting because we see our lives on this trillion year, billion year arc and beyond. There's, a, there's nothing that the world can take from us. 
there's nothing that it can really give us at this point, but there's nothing that it can take. Therefore, it frees us, it frees us at the heart level to give because, uh, because we've been given so much from the Lord and we will be given so much in the age to come far beyond what we can ask or imagine the, the fullness of his love that frees us to love. The measure by which we are gripped with fear is the measure by which we haven't been freed by love. And, um, and there is a, there is a transcendent, powerful, holy, fiery love from him that, that gets us out of that kind of self-centered, self-preserving way and into this really tender, um, really kind of free hearted. Look, it's, it isn't, I, I am not happy with how the next few years may go, but they're just a vapor. They're just a moment. And I find that, that uh, between the fierce, loyal, jealous, committed, intense love of Jesus, that subject connected to eternity and having an eternal perspective, I find that those two things work the fastest to work fear out of my heart, fear of loss, fear of failure. I mean, there's so many. It's more than just fear of the future and fear of change. We got 20 fears about today that we can get locked up by. And so, so again, I find that, that uh, the best way forward, is, as I said earlier, the more that we know that man on the throne and the more that we know his commitment to us, that, that it's real and that he really is working in an active way for our good. And, uh, and some of that good does involve at times material blessings. He does want to help us and he does want to help us make it you know there there's a sense where he goes not even fear don't even do worry you know matthew 6 don't even do worry like i'm with you i've got this if i if i take care of the flowers and the birds you're of so much more value to me you are of so much more value and and again as i when i say the love of jesus what i really mean is matthew 6 do not worry know your value to him if i know my value to him and if i know how seriously he takes me in my life and I know how committed he is to me and jealous to help me. And, and Philippians 2, the humble servant who wants to serve me, which is so, uh, like so challenging to me. The king wants to serve me. And he wants to use the power, all the power within his disposal. Every spiritual blessing, Paul said. Um, everything pertaining to life and godliness, Peter said. That everything within his being is committed to bring me into a place of victory and joy and delight and free heartedness. And so the more that I begin to fix my eyes on that Jesus, the one who has something stronger, Song of Solomon 8.6 calls it the fiery seal of love. It's stronger than death. I need to be sealed with a love that is stronger than death until I am by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God working in my life. Until I am, I will be afraid of death. I will be afraid of loss. I will be afraid of the future, but there's a fiery seal of love, Song of Solomon 8, 6, that once sealed with it, something stronger than death is alive within me, and it changes everything. It changes how I see the future. It changes how I see the threats of that future, the possibilities, because now I can see past those possibilities. It's stronger than death. It's stronger than the grave, and I can see past the grave and past the potential loss to see the Christ that I can gain in the eternal perspective of his love and commitment to me. I just got, I, we just got to make that real. The more real that is, the more fear has no place in our life. And the more what men can do to us is, is a small and temporary thing. Really, actually, in an intense way compared to what God will do to them if they don't repent. They can do to me, but, but, our God is a God who said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will have vengeance on the righteous for whom the wicked trample and uh, trample upon, and which causes us to go, ah, wait, no, instead of being afraid of the wicked and what they might do to me, I want mercy for the wicked that they might repent because of what God might do to them. That's a whole other side to this. There is a God that fights for me. He fights for my good in my heart, what Paul's talking about in terms of who I am as a lover of Jesus, but the God that fights for me also fights against my enemies and what God will do to my enemies who do not repent for what they do to me. 
there's a, that's a bigger picture too. It's like, ah, I don't want my God to get his hands on you in an unrepentant state having mistreated me. And so, so yeah, that, I just find that that seal of love changes everything. It changes the conversation of my soul, changes my perspective. It changes my emotional state of being. And, uh, and that's when we talk about preparation, that's the kind of preparation we're talking about. We've got to go after that with, with the whole of our being and the best of our time with the time that we're given. Mm. David, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate you joining us and taking the time. Um, I, I recommend people listening, go, uh, go now, go to Amazon or wherever and, uh, and get a copy of the book. It's a really good one, really important one, especially for the days we're going through right now. Um, the nation's rage, David, Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. I love this. I love being with brothers. It was easy. Yeah, same here, man. I appreciate both of you guys and love that you guys have finally been able to connect in a deeper way. This is two of my different worlds colliding, and that's fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, I'm going to try not to cry on the podcast. So <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. That was the highlight for me by far. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or another podcast platform.